This is Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. It's powered by Shopify, the easiest way to sell online, in person, and anywhere in between. To get an extended 30-day trial, visit shopify.com masters. Hey, entrepreneurs, my name is Felix, and I'm the host of the Shopify Masters podcast. Each week, we put out podcast interviews with successful e-commerce entrepreneurs or experts to give you inspiration, motivation, and actionable tips to increase your traffic and sales so your store can generate the sales you need to live the life you want. In the last episode, Jeff Phillips from Beardo.com goes over his list of criteria to create a giftable product to sell during a holiday shopping season. On this episode, two first-time entrepreneurs join us to talk about how they started a $15 million watch company with one founder in China. In this episode, you'll learn why one of the founders moved to China to start a business, why you should launch on Kickstarter even if you already have a completed product, and how to price your products correctly. Today, I'm joined by Andrew and Ryan Beltran from OriginalGrain.com. That's O-R-I-G-I-N-A-L-G-R-A-I-N.com. Original Grain is the premier maker of all-natural wood and stainless steel watches. It was started in 2012 and based out of San Diego, California. Welcome, Andrew and Ryan. Hey, thanks for having us. Yeah, thanks, man. Appreciate it. Yeah, excited to have you guys on. So yeah, tell us a bit more about your story and uh, these watches that you sell. Yeah, so I think we can, you know, like you mentioned, 2012 was kind of more more when the idea was conceptualized. Um, I was actually living in China, of all places at the time. Uh, I moved out there in, in 2011 after graduating from college. Uh, we both grew up in Oregon, Pacific Northwest. And uh, after school, I just said, hey, it's time for a change. Let's let's mix it up. <laughs> moved halfway around the world. Uh, was really looking for an opportunity. Wasn't sure what I wanted to do. Uh, taught English part time just to get by, pay the bills. Uh, had an amazing experience, and uh, you know, kind of, kind of fell into it. I always wanted to start a brand. I always wanted to be an entrepreneur. Um, that's you know, that's why I moved out there. So w- when I was living in China, I, I basically uh, came across the idea, and I was like, hey, these there's these these wooden watches, and you know, as soon as I saw them, the kind of the light bulb went off, and I, I realized, hey, there there could be something here, you know. And so I did a little bit of research. I saw. That there, there are a few companies out there doing all wood watches. There was actually a really cool company in Portland that you, some of you may know. It's named, it's called Schwood. They do all wood sunglasses. Um, they actually were a, a big inspiration just because of everything they had done and, and it's made in America and all that. But um, and I was like, hey, what, what's something I could do? You know, that's a little different and and uh, you know, basically pioneer a new category um, within the watch watch uh, watch niche and uh so anyway yeah i started playing with the idea over there and uh kind of conceptualized it uh in 2012 okay cool so you wanted to uh start a brand like you were saying you want to be an entrepreneur and you were you said you were in china at this point yeah i, I moved out there uh 2011 and then in 2012 i kind of started playing with the idea yeah so wh- why china why did you you know know that you wanted to be an entrepreneur and then you know people think about startups they think about the the big cities and the i guess probably in the u.s for the most part if you're in fashion maybe you're in new york maybe you're in tech maybe you're in san francisco but you're talking about moving to the other side of the world in China to be an entrepreneur. What made you attracted to that location to, to start a business? I think definitely the reason was because I knew that I, I wanted to go straight to the source. You know, if I wanted to do a, a physical product, a branded product, I knew that I would more than likely be manufacturing it at scale in China. Um, you know, it's just kind of the way things go. I, I wasn't necessarily going for a brand that had the whole made in America 
uh, thing. So, mm -hmm. so for me, I knew that I would ultimately probably be out there. So for me, I was kind of utilizing that as somewhat of a competitive advantage and, and, uh, you know, being directly being located in, in Southern China, I lived in Guangzhou. Um, I was able to literally go into the factories, work on the first designs with them in person. Uh, I, you know, I spent over a year, you know, on that first design, Andrew and I both did. Um, and so we just, you know, it was, it was a huge point of leverage for us in the beginning. Very cool. So did you have other ideas that you're bouncing around at the time or were, were, or were these watches, these wooden watches, your very first kind of, uh, idea and you just kind of ran with it? It was, it was the pretty much, <laughs> pretty much the first idea. Uh, and honestly it was, it, it took, it didn't take much research to realize that, there was a there was a void in the market um, for these watches, and no one had done it. And um, again, people had done wood watches, but no one had done wood and steel watches. And um, you know, as soon as I got that first sample, I realized that these were, in some ways, an upgraded version of what was already on the market. Mm -hmm. A little more durable, a little more stylish, at least in my opinion. Um, and, and it could definitely, you know, serve a serve a need. Right. And this this is Andrew again. You know, as, as soon as I was introduced to the watches and Ryan had shown me them, he was, you know, really excited about it. And um, kind of going back to our roots, where we're from in the Northwest, you know, being outdoors, you know, infused with nature at all times, you know, this product really is inspiring to us and kind of kind of holds a, a little bit of a mark of who we are. And, uh, you know, cra whether crafted in China or, you know, made in the U.S., you know, the, the wood does go through a pretty gnarly uh, handcrafted process. You know, it's, it's not necessarily a pour a mold and get the watches out, put a logo on it, you know, and that's something I know Ryan's always spoke to. And, you know, I fell in love with, too, was the process and just how the wood grain looks. And, yeah, that's something that we loved right off the bat and we wanted to go and go to work. Mm, okay, so while Ryan was running around China, Andrew, were you were you in the U.S.? Like, what were you doing at the time? Yeah, so I have a little different kind of background, I guess. I, I was actually in the military. I was in the Marine Corps prior to doing the watch business. Um so, yeah, I wanted to get, you know, after right out of high school, I joined the Marines. I, I wanted to serve the country um, and did that. I was a field radio operator. And I, it's, it's funny how it all worked out. I was <laughs> returning from our, my first tour, um, and we just so happened to stop in Hong Kong on the way back. And so we had three days, uh, like kind of like R&R, &R, I guess. We're headed, we're headed home, though. Um, and so obviously Ryan, I let Ryan know in advance and he was there and, and he showed me the samples, you know, on site. And, um, I obviously was really excited the moment I saw him and, um, you know, we kind of got to work from there. Yeah. So, it, as soon as I, you know, it was, it was kind of another, one of those light bulb moments where like, aha moment, like, you know, wait a minute, he, we could do this together, right. you know, and, uh, Andrew's actually younger than I am, right. but he, he had the money at the time and he'd saved a little bit. I, I needed some money to make those first samples, right. first, first run of watches. And I was like, well, how about we do this together? You know, right. he, he believed in it and it was like it, within a second, he was like, yep, I'll give it to you. And so that's kind of how we went into business together right. and it's worked out. Yeah, it definitely was always a dream. You know, we figured it'd happen later in life to work together and, mm -hmm. and just kind of, be, we, you know, we're, we grew up best friends and he was always kind of um, a role model for me kind of like helped me get through a lot of things. So uh, to see it happen at a young age and how it's really played out, it's been a blessing for sure. Yeah, very cool how it all worked out for you guys. Um, so, so Andrew, uh, when you or no, so Ryan, when you were in China and you were at these factories, like tell us a little more about this. I think this is a really interesting story because a lot of times I have entrepreneurs come on here that will say that started businesses outside of China, but then 
realize that you really have to be at the factory or at least at the very beginning, you know, spend time in the, the same city where your your goods are being made, at least just to get make sure the quality is there, make sure the iterations are a lot faster. But you started right there. You're and you were, you know, you were searching for, I guess, manufacturers on the ground. So tell us about that experience. Like how did you even begin this search? Like you had this idea for these uh, wooden stainless steel watches. Uh, then what? Like, how did you even begin to look for these manufacturers? Yeah, I mean, I, again, I think it was a huge advantage first and foremost to be to be located in China, in southern China, especially because that's where um, I don't know if many people know, but uh, a lot of the manufacturing in general happens. You know, Apple has their you know Foxconn's there and uh, electronics galore, but also watches. Um, a big hub for watches is in, in Shenzhen, which is about an hour train ride from Guangzhou where I was living. So yeah, I mean, I think again, I had the advantage and the luxury of being located there and it helped, it helped us tremendously. Um, just because I was able to, like you said, go into the factories, meet with them, make revisions in real time. I mean, we didn't have a designer. This was our first business. We were, I was 22, 23, uh, when the idea, so I didn't, again, I didn't have any money or, or the ability to hire a designer. Um, and so I was leaning on them and, you know, I, my, my Chinese wasn't that good, but I was, I had some friends and that's kind of how actually I found a lot of the suppliers initially was just through my network that I had built over the last year, year and a half, um, prior while living there. And a lot of the friends that I made had sourcing backgrounds and they knew suppliers or new friends of friends that knew watchmakers. And, um, you know, there's trade, there's fares and there's ways to, you know, if you're located, that makes it easy. You don't have to fly, you know, 16 hours and pay the, you know, the travel fees. So, um, yeah, it was a, it was amazing experience and it also helped us a lot in the beginning. Mm, Cool. So, you know, you were young, like you're saying, you're in your early twenties at the time, you didn't have cash, you didn't have the money. Did they take you seriously when you started meeting these manufacturers? Did it take any convincing at all? What was the the initial experience like when you were had the, I guess the very first meetings with these uh, manufacturers? That's an interesting point. I, I think they actually at first didn't take me all that seriously. If I if I think back on it, I think um, you know in the beginning I I, I had to bring in. I, I brought a friend of mine, so she kind of posed <laughs> as my assistant. I'll never forget that. I was like, "Can you come with me to the factory?" Like you know, she uh, <laughs> obviously she was she, she was Chinese, so obviously she spoke the language, and uh, I think that helped me a little bit. Just stand, mm-hmm. you know, not seem like some random white guy standing in the factory <laughs> looking for looking for a hundred watches, you know, like I didn't even, you know, what's an MOQ? Like, you know, so, um, yeah, I think at first maybe it was a little bit, uh, you know, strange for them, but, um, I found, I found a decent supplier who was able to do what I needed to do. Um, since then, I, uh, we've been like kind of to Andrew's point about these watches being handcrafted and, and rather difficult to make. We've been through, this is our fourth supplier, I mm-hmm. think. So, um, you know, we definitely made changes since the beginning uh, to where we're at now. Right. Cool. So, on the other, I guess, other side of this, then, were do you, were you ever worried about you know being had because you know, you were coming into these places, you didn't really speak the language that well, um, and maybe you looked like an easy target, right? Because there's this guy that wants to start a business. Of course, will take his money. You know, it's an experience I think a lot of uh, businesses have early on. I don't think it's as big. I think it's a bigger issue when you can't see them face to face. But did you ever? you know, not have the kind of trust early on because you were surrounded by, you know, people that, not surrounded by people that you didn't know, but just like other, they, they've worked with, you know, companies that are much bigger than yours. Were you ever worried about being taken advantage of? Yeah, I mean, this is Andrew and, 
you know, I, I we actually did come across that a few times. Um, you know, watchmaking alone is pretty difficult. Um, you know, from the movement to the materials, you know, to the steel, to the, the glass cover, you know, and we went through a few phases where we, you know, we were, we were getting had, as you said, you know, and uh, we thought we were paying a little bit more premium for something that it actually wasn't that. So, you know, we, we did have to, you know, self-teach ourselves a lot of things um, and just really refine the process and, you know, checks and balances across the board, you know, and um, for the first actually few years, Ryan did handle all our production and development and, it was definitely a crazy learning curve, you know, and there's late nights and yeah, I mean, uh, <laughs> I, at some point I had to move back, you yeah. know, like, so I moved to the States and was that till, I guess to progress a little bit in the story yeah. in 2000, back to the States in 2014. Mm-hmm. So I've been back for almost two years. Crazy. Um, you know, and, and so then, you know, it was, it was a little more difficult to manage. So I had to fly yeah. back over there since then we've hired, uh, full-time, full-time, you know, yeah. uh, people on the ground as well as someone here in the States who goes over a few times a year, but yeah. Mm, very cool. So now that you have this experience of going through the very early early stages of working with these manufacturers, how would you prevent this? Uh, if there's a you know entrepreneur out there that's thinking about working in manufacturer, maybe they don't have the the ability or the the advantage of being uh, on the ground floor at these factories. Uh, what can you? I guess what kind of advice can you give them to make sure that they don't run into these issues where they are you know potentially being exploited? I guess. Yeah, um, I think you know first and foremost the product is will help you identify the things. So like for example, like Andrew said, watches are, are difficult because there's so many different materials that they're using from the movement to the glass to the steel. To the, you know, whereas maybe something that's you know a widget or made from molded plastic might not be something you have to worry so much about um, being taken on just because you just need to make sure the quality's on par. Um, I mean, I think the, the first thing I, I would say is, is definitely go over there. Like you kind of were saying in the beginning, um, and meet them face to face Chinese from what I experienced and just culturally, they have a lot of respect for people who actually go in and meet with them face to face. I, I know a lot of people already know that, but, um, you know, it's worth, worth the, uh, investment and in going over there. Um, so I think that's step number one for sure. Um, and then just, you know, like during the process, you know, when your first big run comes out, go back over there. I mean, maybe that's the first time you go over there and right. write, write stuff to being finished, check it by hand personally. And, um, you know, it's going to be difficult for them to, to, uh, to take you on that. If you're, if you're sitting right. there in the factory, mm-hmm. I mean, we've done that ourselves. Mm-hmm. And now that we have a QC team, you know, there's always going to be concerns. There's always going to be issues, but I mean, you can obviously just do your best to, to make sure, you know, the quality's on point. They're not, you know, using things they're not, they're saying they're, they right. are. And like anything, it's, it's really relationship based, you know, the more mm-hmm. face you have with, you know, their Laoban, which is, you know, boss. And <laughs> I probably didn't say that right. Well, you know, the more FaceTime you have with them and the more that, you know, it's like Ryan said, they'll respect you more. And it's just building that relationship with the factories. And um, we had a, a, a sourcing agent at one time, too, and we made sure he was in there a few times a week. And, yeah, it's just make sure they see your, your company's name across their desk a bunch, you know, it seems like. Yeah, it makes sense. So when you were working in these factories, um, did you go through, like, what, what was the iteration process? Like, how many times would you say you had to go through these iterations before you had a product that was uh, good enough? On the first one, it was, I think it was, yeah, two or three. It might have been more like four or five, to be yeah. honest, just because, you know, it was, again, we didn't have a, a real, real designer here in the States doing it for us. Actually, Andrew and I 
full getting <laughs> used to ourselves, which is a funny story um, <laughs> for another day. But you know, uh, it took a few times. You yeah. know, and, and I remember the first one we got, we were like, "Oh, have like have yeah. like this? We can't sell this." You know yeah. what I mean? And then, um, you know, I, it, same thing goes for, but then you learn that. And so like for the next collection and then honestly, our, our most recent collection that's actually yeah. coming out, it's on pre-seller now, it'll be available next month. That took us a year. I mean, but you, you understand that and you work it into your timeline as a company, you know, like, you know, when you're first starting, it's almost like you want instant gratification, you want it now. But mm-hmm. as you grow, you realize that like there's a timeline and there's mm-hmm. a merchandising strategy and there's a, a product development timeline. And, and that's something we've learned. And now that we understand that, we we can work within those timelines and we know there's going to be iterations. That's just, that's all of it. Yeah. Yeah, I, th- I think that makes sense that you don't want to rush things. And like you're saying, it's a process uh, to this and you can't always rush the process. Uh, but now that you've been through this a few times, were there things that you learned along the way that uh, you either worked on improving or maybe even removed to, removed to reduce this iteration time? I mean, I think the first thing was, was uh, there's not really that much you can do, to be honest. Like I said, the uh, the iteration process is only natural, but I, we did hot again. We, we were able now that we have the resources just financially to bring someone on and help us make these to to help with the design process. That definitely helped one hundred percent. Because but even the first chronograph watch, the one that we're, that's coming out next month, that we just saw an image when our 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 product development manager was in China just two weeks ago, and he sent us an an image of the watch in China that was the first sample that we got back from them of this watch, and it looked like a toy. I mean. Yeah. You just come so far on anything, and um, so I don't know. It's, it's difficult to cut it cut it short. I don't know right. if you really want to, if right? You, you yeah, know, yeah. You just need to take the take the proper steps to make improve it. You know, that's what we're really about. You know, we're we're kind of gnarly into always improving the process and the, and the product. You know, and yeah, we're we're always refining. You know, so we will go through three or four different reiterations. You know, just to make sure we hit everything we like, whether it's the I mean, the, how the crown looks, the indentation on the bezel, just, I mean, yeah. we're, yeah, we're pretty, yeah. yeah. Any business owner knows, right? Yeah. You know, your, your yeah, eyes. the details. Yeah. <laughs> For sure. So, you know, when you had that first iteration, like, and you, I think one of you were saying that you saw and you said, there's no way we can sell this. What made you think that, think to let's go back and fix this rather than say, you know what, this is, might not be the right industry for us. We don't have what we what we need, whether it be the factories or the design or just the expertise to make this better. What made you guys decide that let's keep on doing this, let's keep on trying to improve this thing rather than trying to move on to something else? For me, it's, it's kind, of, kind of sound funny. I. For me, I wanted yeah. to make it right because I owed my brother some money. <laughs> and I knew I was going to be able to pay him back unless this thing would sell. So uh, I don't know, Andrew, do you have anything on that? Or? Yeah, right, you know, that I didn't really think about that, but that goes to kind of testament to Ryan. Honestly, Ryan's a perfectionist. You know, that's kind of his side and his personality. And a lot of successful people are like that. You know, they want to make sure it's, you know, exactly how they want to sell it and present it. And, yeah. yeah, it wasn't good enough. So yeah, you yeah. have you have to set your standards high you know, yeah. for everything. Mm, okay, cool. So you also mentioned that at this point you're on your fourth supplier. Is that what you said? Yeah, yeah. our fourth one. So the thing with our watches is we've got like you know we we have a watch manufacturer who makes the steel and they'll source the movement and they'll source the you know get generic like 
typical watch parts like crowns and the whole thing. And then um, we have a wood cutting source as well that, you know, helps us source the wood and manufacture the wood, cut the wood, you know. And so our, our process is a little more complicated than most watchmakers just because, because of the wooden element. So um, we're on our, I think our third like watch manufacturer and on our fourth wood supplier, mm-hmm. uh, wood cutter, you know, so uh, and then we just brought that in house actually to our, we bought the machines in China to cut the wood. Like, you know, we're pretty far down the road now. So right. we've kind of taken those steps that that's helped a ton. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. So what, what makes you decide to switch um, suppliers or manufacturers? I think the, the biggest thing is quality. And then behind that would be pricing. And then honestly, yeah, volume and ability to deliver within the lead times. And we, one of the suppliers, we just, he just couldn't hit the lead times. I mean, it was like 60 to 90 days, pretty standard, but then you start hitting 120 and it's like four months, you know, just too long. And so you got to have a reliable, you know, supplier on, on all fronts. Uh, lead time's Mm -hmm. huge, but again, I mean, at the end of the day, quality is just as important, right? Mm -hmm. So when you are evaluating new suppliers and new manufacturers to move on to next, What's that process like? I mean, are you just asking them what's your lead time and asking them these questions? Because how much can you, I guess, trust? Uh, I, I sound so untrustful right now to, to these manufacturer suppliers based on my questions. But you know, how do you know, how do you interview, I guess, or how do you determine uh, what's a good supplier, what's a manufacturer when you are trying to improve your supply chain? Yeah, so I, I know Matt, who's our product development you know manager, he would definitely be able to answer better than I would. But I, I, if I had to say, you know, just from my experience, um, who are their current clients? You know, who are they already making product for? Mm-hmm. Granted, they might be a competitor, um, or or they might not be. Uh, but if they can deliver for them, you gotta you gotta bet they can deliver for you. In the beginning, it's gonna be tough because you're you know until you hit certain volumes with a supplier that is good, you're gonna be pretty low on the totem pole mm-hmm. in terms of just like the volume. And so you'll run into issues, sure, but you know. I, at the end of the day, it's a little bit of a gut instinct and also just like, who are they working with? Right. I and mean, that's kind of a big one for us, for sure. Mm-hmm. And do you remember that original investment? Like how much did you uh, owe to uh, Andrew at the end of the day? What was that initial uh, investment or how many, what was the minimum order quantity that you had to hit before these manufacturers started talking to you? Well, yeah, today it sounds funny, but at the time it was a lot of money. I think it was like 10,000, yeah. around mm-hmm. 10, like nine or 10,000. And uh, I think the initial run was like 300 watches. 350, 300 yeah. watches, yeah. Yeah, Andrew was selling, trying to sell them out of his backpack until the, the other light bulb went off. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and we decided we wanted to, do a Kickstarter, but yeah. yeah. Cool. Yeah, definitely want to talk about the Kickstarter a bit. Uh, before we move on to that, though, you mentioned that uh, today you have hired some roles, uh, not just, uh, I guess you have roles on the ground in China and then also someone local, someone in your locally or in your office that works directly with the manufacturers as well? Yeah, yeah. We, we have somebody here kind of helps with all the product design development and uh, works with the manufacturers. And we have a few other bodies here to kind of take, take some of the load off me and Ryan and just kind of really drive that, whatever it is their job is, um, social media manager, as well as a uh, creative, creative director. director. Yeah. Very you know, cool. Digital advertiser as well. So Yeah, so did you, you also have someone working for you in China? Yeah, so my first assistant over there, she's still on board um, with us, and she knows the product really well. She's just total angel, so we're totally ble- we're blessed to have her. And then we do have a um, uh, what do you call them? Like a QC team, but also there's like a product. I can't think of the name of it, but basically they help facilitate the production side of it and make sure that everything's running smoothly. And then Joanna, our assistant, is just kind of our right hand girl who 
who uh, who works with us day to day and then is the liaison between us and that um, product management company and the factory. If that makes sense. Yeah, that, that that's cool that you have a quality control team that that's independent from the, the the supplier, the manufacturer. How do they work though? How do they work for you? Like, what are they doing on a not their day to day basis? But how do what kind of tasks are they responsible for? The quality control team. Yeah, they're they're really in charge of checking orders as they come out. So you know, we we know based on our lead time when an order is going to be um, about to be delivered, and they'll go literally into the factory and they will check either every piece in the beginning, if it's a new supplier, especially, or a, a large percentage of it. And at some point you have to kind of just play the percentage game. Right. And, uh, you know, you're talking orders of 10,000, 15, 20,000, 30. I mean, however many watches you're making, it's going to be, um, difficult to check every watch. Yeah. Um, it, you know, and also be rather expensive. So in the beginning, definitely with a new supplier, we would check, it'd be hundred percent QC. And then you kind of taper back as they prove themselves. And then we had an additional QC here in the States with our fulfillment center. Um, prior to sending a watch, they'll, they literally open the box, make sure there's a watch in there, <laughs> which there should be. And then uh, obviously kind of check the crown, make sure everything's good. There's no blemishes on the wood. And so there was kind of a, tw- a, a twice over on the watch before it actually gets to the customer. Yeah, this might be an interesting uh, strategy for for folks that might not be able to go to the manufacturers at least um, all the time is to have someone there uh, doing the quality control for them. So do you need to hire or do you hire a full-time team over there? Are you hiring them by a project? Like what's the business arrangement usually with a quality control team? Yeah, it's definitely by project. So you're not there. More than likely they wouldn't be because a lot of quality control companies have like lots of clients. And so they're just hired you know, service oriented. So, you know, when you have an order coming out, they're your go-to for QC. Obviously you have a relationship with them. There's going to be some type of charge based on the number of units they're checking. Usually there's a daily rate. It's actually not by the number of units. Um, mm-hmm. But you know, you can break it down that way as well. You know, in an eight hour day, they can check a hundred watches or 200 watches and then you can just do the math. But um, yeah. Yeah. And is quality something that's, um, I guess, uh, quantitative? Like how do you, yeah, that's, such, that's such a weird question. <laughs> how do you measure, how do you tell them, how do you communicate to these uh, QC teams uh, what you're looking for? Yeah, so when that, when that there's, there's a document. I mean, it's just kind of like a, you know, systems and procedures, you know. Right. So, you know, basically they're looking at, you know, for us, you know, with our product, you know, every product's different again. But for us, you know, there's going to be the clasp, there's going to be the band, there's going to be wood, there's going to be how it's inlaid, there's going to be the belt. There's just every element of the watch. And then they're literally going through and checking every room, everything that we ask them to. And then there's a report that comes back um, with any defects, with images. Literally, they take photos in the factory and, send, and put them in the document. Um, typically, there's not that many, but there's definitely some, which is why you have them. Very cool. So okay, so now you have at least the initial run. You have these three hundred watches that, that that are made. Then what? Like, what did you do with them? How did you sell those? So yeah, so yeah we, we weren't necessarily sure at the time. We had our website up. We weren't sure how to drive traffic. We had our social media going. We weren't sure how to do that either. Um, but yeah, we were. We were honestly. I was out selling out of the backpack, doing kind of super bootstrap gorilla, no experience type sales, um, which obviously isn't the route to go. And uh, you know, as Ryan said, light bulb went off that we should look into crowdfunding and just getting these on the market, getting in front of a bunch of eyeballs and seeing how seeing how people react to them. Um, and, then, and that's exactly what we did. Um, 2013, March 2013. Yeah. And uh, we ended up raising, I think, over 330,000, I think, on our first campaign. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of the first testament, knowing that 
you know, what we, what we had was something special um, and that we needed to really dive in. Yeah, let's talk about it. So Kickstarter for you guys, you have two campaigns. We'll start with the first one uh, that was the, the original grain, I guess is the title of the Kickstarter campaign. You had a goal of $10,000, ended up raising almost, actually almost $400,000 from uh, over 2,000 uh, backers. So what? So that $10,000 that you wanted to raise, was this more like um, a, a sale? Because you guys already had the products itself. Like, What did you need the money for? Was it just a straight-up sale, or did you need to reinvest that ten grand? Yeah, I mean, for uh, for me, honestly, it was kind of like a re- like almost like pulling it back and starting over again. Like, we had, like, these two or three hundred watches, you know, like, we weren't really sure how to sell. Like, let's, let's almost in some ways, like, reset and relaunch this via Kickstarter. We hadn't even launched it. So like right. really just launch it via Kickstarter and use that as our launch pad, which obviously worked out really well. Again, we didn't clearly buy our goal $10,000. We had no idea like how well it was going to go. Um, you know, and even when I, Andrew's looking at the campaign now, it's funny to look at it, but there's a very genuine, you know, yeah. approach. And uh, I think it resonated really well with people. We also launched at, at, on a t- during a time when Kickstarter was relatively new, crowdfunding in general was relatively new. Um, you know, we were featured pretty much on the home page for almost 30 days, which was a huge advantage now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it, there's always an element of luck, right? It, it, with most success stories. And I think for us, that was, that was our little bit, our, our little piece of luck for, for the, you know, right. for the company when we launched was like, Hey, this got in front of a lot of people, but also it validated the product. I mean, you can get anything in front of a lot of people and that doesn't necessarily mean they're going to buy it. Um, but people did. And, and that was like our validation, uh, you know, for the product and the business and really what, what took us forward, gave us the cash to invest in inventory, obviously deliver the products to the backers, have a little bit of money for marketing and kind of get on our way. Yeah, I've heard this uh, recently with Kickstarter because you know at one point I think it was heavily used to uh, basically fund an idea. No product yet, no no even roadmap to create the product, just to fund an idea. Now it's gotten to the point where it's an effective way to launch a product where the product is already completed or very close to completion. Just needs the funds to uh, to, to to place that 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 initial run, that initial order. Um, but I think uh, Kickstarter has evolved a lot. Is now is now a great way to just launch a product. Product. And I've heard this. I've seen the statistics. I've even heard people on this podcast talk about statistics about how people just spend more time on Kickstarter than on like a product page. And because they spend more time on a Kickstarter page, you have more opportunity to explain your product. And I think it's just a much more engaged audience. So I think what you guys did back then is still an effective strategy today, even if you already have an existing product, you didn't have Absolutely. an official launch. Yeah, I think it's a you guys you hit the nail on the head with the the you know the reason why you wanted to go with it. Yeah, so you know, t- get ten thousand dollars was the goal. Raised almost four hundred thousand dollars, and you know, the campaign you, you said lasted about thirty days. Were you guys, uh, you know, freaking out that all this came in, or were you excited? Like, what were the emotions like during this uh, period? Yeah, it's a, I, I love this story because yeah, I was I was in China uh, when we launched. I hadn't moved back. This was March two thousand thirteen. I moved back till the following year. Um, I remember the night before we launched because it was night. It was about. 11 a I, we wanted to launch in the morning here in the states so it was, china's about i think it was 14 15 hours ahead so i i don't know what the math was but around 7 a.m would have been like 10 p.m in china so we pressed launch and i was so like didn't know like i remember calling andrew the night before on skype and being like i think we can do like 40 mm-hmm. like you know the goal is 10 obviously let's let's be modest about that but i think we'll do 40 or 50 you know that was kind of the the high goal for us 
And I literally pressed launch. I'd been working so hard. I went to sleep. Like, I don't even know how I went to sleep. I went to sleep. And I wake up, and there are, like, my Facebook's exploded. Like, I have 100 messages from my brother. Like, Skype's going off. And I'm like, what's going on, you know? And I wake up, and we've got, like, I don't know. I think it was, like, 20,000 or something. Like, it was crazy. And so. This is just uh, overnight. Pretty much overnight. So it was one of those, like. Felt like I made a million bucks overnight. Obviously, it was only twenty grand, but yeah, right. the way I felt, I can imagine. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Cool. So, so once you guys, uh, you know, got these funds, the campaign ended. Like, how did you even decide to? How did you even decide to? How to use the money? Well, actually, I think Andrew probably answered that pretty well. I mean, we didn't know. Like, we didn't know. I think that's a, a pretty humble beginnings. You know, we neither of us had a, a, right. a solid background and. You know, it's not like we came from a, a previous brand or an agency or anything like that. We really just had that entrepreneurial instinct. And, and uh, so when we got the money, it was like, well, let, let's make the watches. Like, we got to make those. We got to deliver them. And then let's well, obviously put a, a decent chunk back into inventory so we have more watches to sell. Like, the business went on, right? And then from there, you know, we actually wanted to take a very retail approach. Like, that was our, our, our quote-unquote strategy, right? So, we, you know, like – we weren't sure about online marketing. Like we didn't know. So we were like, well, let's, let's start getting into retail, like, so to speak. And so we right. put together these kits and we, you know, literally go out and try and sell them, which is kind of funny. Like we realized that's not how it works. But uh, at the time, you know, we're, that's really what we were trying to do. Um, you know, we put them, we put some money into advertising here and there, but again, we didn't really know. And so yeah. we were kind of learning, learning as we went. Yeah. Like as Ryan said, you know, us, we didn't come from necessarily a background. So a lot of this is self-taught. It's funny to think how far we've come in three years. You know, our strategy currently is, is I think really on par with a lot of successful companies and brands, but you know, at the time you didn't know where to go. And, you know, at, at one point we ended up having a consult a guy consulting us. That's actually our product developer now, Matt. Um, and he was kind of, st- he came from, he kind of came from the industry, he worked with a few brands. Um, so he kind of shepherded us along the way, kind of where to, kind of where to put your chips, how to structure your company, how to set, set a business plan, um, and you know, how to align it with your marketing. And, um, yeah, that just really helped us through our first year, you know, to kind of just, you know, we, we still had a successful first year, you know, even, even post Kickstarter, still a ton of, you know, organic traffic coming to the site and people, you know, still interested in the product when they'd see it. Um, and then, yeah, we obviously we ended up launching our second campaign, and that's really when we turned on the jet fuel and understand it, kind of what we were doing, uh, kind of what like how big the internet is, what the beast that it is, and how you can really, um, I guess, get involved, you know, through all the different channels. And um, that's when we were kind of running at full steam. I guess we started getting going. Yeah, yeah. Hearing hearing about how you guys, you know, talk about your story, it it kind of almost helps me visualize two types of uh, businesses that get started. I think a lot of entrepreneurs are in one of these two camps, which is one where you're almost like constantly pushing this big boulder up a hill. Every inch you're, you know, pushing with all you've got. For you guys, it almost seems like this thing just took a life, had a life of its own and just took off and you were on this ride with it and just trying to figure it out along the way. Like, first of all, is that a fair assessment of no, how you, yeah. it feels? Yeah, it totally speaks to the product that we've created. You know, it's it's very unique. You know, and and like you said, we we jumped on the roller coaster with this thing, and it really is a testament to what we have. Um, 
and then yeah, we were figuring it out day to day for sure. Yeah, and I've heard of you know other other very quickly successful businesses where the the Uber success of of it all is actually detrimental to the business where you're just growing too fast. You're you know jumping from the minor leagues because you guys are just trying to figure it out now into the major leagues because of all this funding, all these customers. You're dealing with you know much larger orders. At any point, did you ever feel like you're about to fall off this ride? I don't think so. Not in the beginning. I think if anything, it'd be <laughs> it'd be now the growth is even <laughs> even crazier at this point than it was back then. I mean, um, a successful Kickstarter campaign campaign is relatively easy to manage. Uh, you know, there was growth for sure. Don't get me wrong. Um, but there wasn't massive scale in the beginning. It was more of like a validation again of the concept. Um, a lot of time spent on figuring out who our customer is, figuring out the pricing model that we wanted to work at, whether that was online versus retail. I mean, even at one point, you know, we were like, do we, do we market ourselves as direct to, you know, D to C like mm-hmm. direct to consumer with this in, 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 price accordingly, you know, versus being retail and pulled that back. And like, we've done a lot of things over the last, I mean, really 2013, we launched, but we, you know, 2014 was our first year in business. Like we had product to sell. And then, uh, 2015 last year was a lot about just figuring out the real strategy of what we wanted to do. Um, you know, building out the product collections and planning for this year. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, that kind of gets us to where we are now. Mm, very cool. So when you, you know, once you had that successful Kickstarter campaign, you guys returned back to Kickstarter in 2015 last year, had another, you know, relatively modest goal of $25,000 and blew that out the water again, raising $433,000 from 2,442 backers. So when you returned to Kickstarter, was this a similar situation where you already had the product ready to go and you just wanted to use Kickstarter as a launch pad? Like what was the state of the, the product at that point? Yeah, so we actually at this point we you know I think you mentioned this earlier we used we didn't have any any inventory so we purely used Kickstarter as a way to more or less like a lot of companies pre-sell I mean in a lot of ways you're pre-selling product and mm-hmm. so um, and obviously bring in some money uh, to to uh, to invest in inventory so that was really what we used it for and in, in, on this second campaign is we knew we were probably going to do pretty well um, we had obviously had that success. We had a decent sized following, good email list, knew how to market a little bit online. Um, and so, you know, we, we thought we would do, honestly, we were shooting for about 500, uh, mm-hmm. 600. Yeah. And so we were a little short, but still, you know, relatively successful and, yeah. and uh, gave us some money to, again, put back into the company. And did you change anything between the first and second campaign in terms of how you promoted it, how you set up the, the campaign page or anything uh, involving the marketing of a Kickstarter campaign? Yeah, I'd say it, it switched up, you know, quite a bit. Um, it, the first campaign was pretty amateur. The second campaign was pretty pro. I'd, I'd put behind it, you know, in regards to PR, we were featured on a lot of different um, tech blogs and fashion blogs. We kind of had all that queued up. Um, we had a few samples that we had sent out to, um, you know, was it GQ, Nine to Five Mac, TechCrunch, just so they could review and kind of put their put their notes behind it to their following. Um, and we had a pretty good story, you know, what we were doing. Um, again, we were we were reclaiming whiskey barrels at the time, so you know that, that's something unique and uh, special, especially for the Kickstarter community. You know, they really take pride in in bringing you know rad shit to market and. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, whiskey barrel, you know, reclaiming that down is, is something obviously can drive mass appeal. So we're bringing definitely 
bring an A game, I think. To yeah. That. Do you find that that's the best use of any uh, Kickstarter creator's time is on the PR, getting early samples to uh, these outlets? I think it's pretty, uh, yeah, I think it definitely helps. It gets that initial boost, you know. You, you want people to be talking about it and it trending, you know, links being shared. Um, you know, PR Blast went out, you know, and we had a ton of good, great coverage happening. So With anything, you know, you, you're always looking at the ROI, right? So, mm-hmm. I mean, PR is great. I, from our experience, you know, PR doesn't drive always the most, like the best ROI. Right. You know, it, it, free, like it's just 100% ROI. But like, even if it's somewhat pay to play or whatever, none of these work for the same for the same Kickstarter. But see, since then, you know, we've done some, you know, paid uh, right. PR coverage and this and that. I think what PR does more than anything is it helps establish credibility and mm-hmm. and like a sense of like, you know, yeah, just credibility for the consumer that like this is you know, this is a legitimate product. These people wouldn't put their name behind it unless mm-hmm. it was. Right. Yeah, you're definitely kind of barring some of the credibility from these outlets because they're, like you're saying, they're putting their name behind your project. I think that's a great way of putting it. Uh, so do you, you know, today, 2015, your, your first Kickstarter was back in uh, 2012. Do you feel like the crowdfunding community has changed? And if so, how? Do you feel like it's saturated? Like, what are your thoughts on people that want to launch a Kickstarter today or crowdfunding in general? I think it's changed tremendously. Um, I would say it's unfortunate, but it's not. I mean, there's a lot more people going to the site. And I guess let me say the reason I would almost say it is is because it's harder to stand out. It's, it definitely is more difficult now today than it was when we did the first one. Not necessarily the second one because I think it's pretty – it's similar to what it was back then even in 2015. I mean it's only been a year since. But it's harder to stand out now than it was back then. Um, so it requires a little more preparation, execution, you can be authentic, you can be genuine. And I think that goes a long way, but I, at the end of the day, it's harder to get eyeballs on the, on the campaign without a little bit of paid advertising, you know, and, and, you know, I think the organic traffic back in 2013, again, was a little bit of a lucky charm and helped kind of, you know, get us in front of a lot of people. Mm, makes sense. So once you had the, I guess maybe the first successful Kickstarter campaign, did you have your own independent uh, website at that time? Like what was the transition like into owning your own kind of domain, your own website? Yeah, we had a website that we had pretty much built out. Nothing like we have today. It was pretty bare bones. Just, you know, we only had one collection and about four or five different SKUs. So, um, you know, we had a website that that was ready. And then about halfway through the cam- campaign and on that first one, we used it as a way to kind of like promote like our website's up, you know, and people really liked that. And they thought it was cool. They could go to an official page and check right. out the watches in a different setting. And yeah, so we had something. Cool. So now that you have a, your own your, your store, the originalgrain.com, uh, what's up, what's been the most successful way for you to drive the traffic and sales to that, to that site? Well, we do a lot of different things. Right now, I'd say it's it's online with paid advertising, primarily on Facebook. Um, I think that's right now the number one way to drive scale um, outside of you know maybe influencer marketing. Yeah. Um, if you were to get on a huge celebrity or something, but that costs a lot. So I think your biggest bang for biggest bang for your buck is going to be online advertising through Facebook. Um, we do some display advertising. We work with Pinterest. We work with a lot of different, actually Andrew manages our whole social influencer program uh, with another guy on the team. Um, so we do a lot of different things. I mean, we have a PR guy um, 
who who really he gets he, he probably been in I don't even know I mean, we just looked at it the yeah, other day sixty or seventy maybe a, upwards of a hundred outlets this year um, so he does an amazing job um, just getting us in places but again I think the number one way we we've driven traffic in the last year has been through online advertising and primarily Facebook. Yeah, so you know, talking about all these different marketing channels and the, the hyper growth that you guys are going through, um, maybe tell us a little bit how you're managing all of this. Like, when there's so much going on, I think you know you have, obviously have a team working for you now, uh, but I would say it's probably relative to other people that are maybe solo founders with a much smaller business that's not going through as much growth. Um, what are your tips, I guess, on, on how to manage all these things that are going on, making sure that you're aware of what's going on, and making sure you're making the decisions with with all the information that you can get like how do you guys uh, handle all of it yeah i mean i'll kind of speak in regards to some of the influencer marketing strategy um you know we we just have our systems really structured and in place you know for myself and i kind of have an assistant helping me do some of the research and development there um but yeah we have our systems in place and everybody's going to be different how they how they like to keep it structured that's something i've always been taught is you know there's a few ways to do it however it makes sense to you um, you know, if, if, whether it's in spreadsheets and, you know, that's how we've done a lot of our influencer outreach and it, it's a lot of grind work. You know, we don't necessarily like to work with a ton of big agencies to do the work for you. And we, we've tried it before. It just necessarily hasn't worked out to our liking. You know, we, we kind of are pretty demanding and the results and, um, kind of the success that we have, um, through some of those, these outlets that are definitely crucial to the business and growing on Instagram and Facebook and Twitter and, um, so yeah, you, you just got to have your systems, kind of what your goals are, um, you know, weekly and monthly, you know, that's something I'm always harping on my guy. He'll tell you, you know, and if we're not hitting our goals, you know, it's definitely a problem, you know? And, um, so yeah, we just, we stay on task and we understand what, what, what is expected, what is going to make us successful, you know, and yeah, we're just on it. Yeah. I mean, we have, we have a team, you know, right now we've, We've gone through different stages where we've had, like Andrew said, things outsourced, different agencies for even online advertising brought that in-house, a little bit of influencer marketing brought that in-house, um, you know, and then, you know, we're a small team, we're lean, we're super right. lean for how, you know, the size we are right now, you know, and so, um, but we got, we got a great team, really yeah. talented and, and uh, really committed and believed. So, yeah. I mean, as you know, any successful entrepreneur I think can speak to, it's like, um, talent, I think outweighs, yeah. you know, and people outweigh anything. So hiring is hard, but, you know, I think once you find talent, you know, you got to swoop it up and, yeah. and, uh, just kind of shepherd it along the way. Yeah. Mm. So can you give us an idea of how successful the business is today, whether it be the growth or the, the size of the business? Yeah. So let's just, I mean, it, so we, we obviously launched our, our first Kickstarter and then 2014 was kind of a, a little bit of a year where we, we were figuring it out. We didn't really know. Um, and then in 2015, we, we really, we had like our breakout year of last year. And so we did like 10 X growth. And then this year we were projecting to do upwards of like 15 million, um, in revenue. So a huge growth from that first, you know, year of kind of hovering in the 500, $700,000 range to where we are now. Wow, that's a that is a huge kind of uptick. What do you what do you guys? I'm sure there's more than one reason, but are there a few things that you can kind of credit this this uh, big uh, spike to? Yeah, I think I mean it's it's again it's being really a. I think the first couple of years we we were again we it, you can validate a, a product quicker than 
more quickly than two years. But like for us, we were kind of setting the stage for this. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's like 2013, 2014, and even part of 2015 up until we finished that second Kickstarter campaign was about. And then really see, and then really turning on jet fuel, being like, all right, we can do this. We got it to work. And we were just able to scale campaigns online. I mean, our online advertising, granted, it takes, it's a difficult ball game. I mean, direct DR marketing is not easy and it takes a product that the consumers like at a price that they're willing to pay. Um, and I think we've been really fortunate and blessed to a certain extent to be able to do what we do. Um, you know, I think having the right product offering and again, right pricing strategy, it's, it's huge. Um, so yeah, I mean, you know, and then I think we're at a point now where, you know, we're looking for additional channels to help grow the business. You know, we, we're really going to be planning on pushing into retail next year. Um, and obviously keep maintaining our online sales growth. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's a lot to juggle, but it's, it's fun. And, you know, a lot of ups and downs and, um, definitely more exciting times than not. And do you remember when, what maybe sometime last year or, 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 you know, maybe in the last year where you realized like, wow, this is really taking off. Do you guys remember looking at each other and saying, this is going to become, you know, many millions of dollars in revenue? Yeah, it was, it was pretty much this time last year, rolling into Q4. Um, we had, the barrel was on the market. Was this on the market? No, just the classic. Yeah, so barrel. the classic and the barrel were both on the, on the market. We were stocked up. You know, that was another thing that we had came, came across in the first two years is we'd have great selling seasons, and then we'd run out of our best A, A SKUs. You know, we, we would be sold out. So obviously that's detrimental to your total revenue. But, you know, last year – um, we were, we were skewed up. We were, we were, you know, had a ton of inventory when we were ready to rock and roll. Um, I think we, at that time we had just brought on our, um, our, our director and he was, you know, creating rad content. We were getting it out in front of everybody, um, right around this time. And we were like, Oh, here we go. And, um, since then we've just successfully launched in a three more, uh, collections. So. Very cool. And you mentioned, I think, um, Ron, you mentioned that the right pricing strategy was also big for you guys. Can you speak more to that? Like, what do you mean by, uh, how did you figure out the pricing and what do you mean by the pricing strategy? I love this topic and it's one that I, honestly drives me yeah. insane. I feel like nobody in the office wants to hear me talk about it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> but no, because because I, it's, it's so important, right? You know, it's your margin. I mean, obviously everyone's margins are different based on their cost of goods, but um I just think, it, again, if it's a, for us, like we, we played with it. Like, so in 2015, we, we looked at, I mean, we price tested full on. Like we had, we, our classic is now priced at $169. I mean, um, it's definitely not something you always want to do because it's, it's tough on the consumer side to see, maybe they notice, maybe they don't, but I do think it's that important that I was willing to do that and almost in some sense risk you know, the, you know, what it looked like on the outside. But, um, you know, we had it priced all the way down, I think like 129 at one point. And what we noticed was it didn't really shift sales that much, at least not enough to make it worth it. Right. right. And there's going to be a point where there's like, a, a, there's a Delta there. Right. And, and so for us, you know, I also think because of the handcrafted nature and the way we market the product that there's also a point where it seems too cheap, you know, like, well, what, if it's only a hundred, like, what if we played in the hundred dollar brands? Like, I, it would be difficult from a margin standpoint, but we thought, well, maybe we'd sell a lot more watches and we'd make it worth it. Well, I don't think our, you know, so it's also about understanding how you're marketing your product, how you want to market your product and how the consumer is going to look at it at a certain price point. So anyway, it's something I put a lot of thought into. I also look 
really closely at what competitors do again um you know the watch market has exploded i mean it's crazy in the last mm-hmm. year and a half two years with online brands just kind of popping up and um having success and and they you know again they kind of take that direct to consumer pricing model and so you know that was another reason why I, you know I, I i didn't i thought about it but ultimately i, I wanted to maintain the the brand image not that they don't have a good one but i just wanted to be who we are and, and work in a different in a different price range so we're currently in like we'll be in the 150 to 400 price range right Wow. So even though you decrease the prices, you know, I'm looking at the prices now, they, they're 149, 169, one, I think 189 as well. Uh, even though you decrease the prices, you didn't see an uptick in, in the sales? Not enough to make it. I mean, right. obviously there was a little bit, right. but you know, you're making, well, 120, that's 40 bucks. My math's not wrong. You know, not enough to make it worth it. And that's a lot of money, you know, when yeah. you're talking about a lot of watches. So, and more margin to work with on the marketing side. I mean, it's to a certain extent, that's right. 40 more dollars you can spend on marketing, right? Mm-hmm. And so, um, yeah, there's just a happy medium there. And I, it's something that I'm a little bit obsessive about, but I think it's it's important, yeah. especially early on. And I think early on for companies can be the first year or two. I mean, it's not like you get you. I mean, ideally, you want to make those decisions as quickly as possible, but don't be afraid to you know like to right. test it and and see what the reaction is and and you know then make a decision. For sure. Yeah, I think one of the difficult things when it comes to testing things like the pricing strategy or even A-B testing anything is trying to control all the other elements that could affect it. Are there any ways to kind of mitigate that or or at least um, uh, normalize the data so that there aren't other factors that might be, in, I guess, impacting the, the changes in the sales just because you changed the, the pricing? Well, that's a good question. I was going to just hit, touch on the fact that pricing is really difficult because like technically you're not allowed to like A, B test on right. the same day, a, a price point, like it's literally mm-hmm. against the law. So, right. you know, I, I know Amazon, I think at one point had some issues with that where they were like actually like advertising one price and then someone would get another price and their friend would be like, wait a minute, I saw it for the, you know, right. mm-hmm. in the same day. I, I think this was years ago, but, um, and I, I could be wrong, but don't sue me, Amazon. But, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but, uh, but, uh, you know, that's one of those things that made it really difficult. Um, I don't know. I think for us, the way we, quote unquote, normalized it, you know, taking these difficulties in, into consideration was just by running it for more than a day or more than two days. You know, we would run it for a month. A month, yeah. Test you know, it for a month. And then look at the data. You know, and at the end of the day, that's the beautiful thing about, you know, kind of the world we live in right now. And, you know, I think right right now the easiest way to validate and and know if you're going to have something is to run it via or, or promote it via online advertising and see how it sticks. Um, you know, I, there's a lot of companies still popping up, taking a, a more traditional retail route. Um, but if I were to co- start a company today, I would still lean on that mm-hmm. in the beginning stages. Mm, makes sense. So now we're in, uh, you know, Q4. So obviously the, the holiday season is, uh, is pretty much here. What are you guys uh, doing to, to prepare for, for this uh, holiday shopping season? Well, we're releasing our, our our best collection yet. You know, something that our consumers have been waiting for. Definitely, are following. They've been wanting something a, a little nicer, something that yeah, we've a higher we're, end. Yeah, higher end, and we're really excited about. So we just released that. Um, yeah, and then I think you know a lot of the preparation has actually already taken place back in. Uh, yeah, that was one thing we learned. Right, it was like let's. I remember last, even last year, this time. You know, we were kind of in the heat of the moment, like right now, like doing a bunch of crazy like photo shoots, trying to get it already, like, 
you know, we've actually taken care of a lot of that legwork. Um, right. You know, and so we've we've already placed, you know, uh, bids or I guess signed, you know, IOs with different, you know, media companies right. for, for paid for paid placements on gift guides and gotten in some for free through our PR outreach. Um, and then also just kind of seeding the watch as we always do to different influencers who will then promote it during the holidays. I mean, the key for the holidays is it, it is without a doubt, as everyone knows, like, I mean, this goes without saying the, the best time of year to sell anything online. So, and uh, really in general, the best time to sell anything. So I think it's just about getting the name anywhere and everywhere. Um, and that's what we're, that's what, right. we're, that's what we're doing. Yeah. And, and like kind of just going into that, you, you kind of scale your, your whole market, your strategy behind, you know, you have your projections of what you want to sell. So in turn, you need to be, you know, spending, you know, that much more, you know, it's this, this Q4 is going to be where, you know, we're setting more watches. We're, we're doing a little bit extra because we know, you know, we have projections on what we want to get to and to get there, we need to be spending X, you know? Very cool. So, you know, obviously had a crazy 12 months for you guys. I'm sure you guys are going to kill it during this Q4 as well. Where do you want to see the business this time next year? I want to see the business. Uh, I mean, I would say the number one thing I would like to, to see us next year is in retail. Um, I really see, I mean, look, 85 to 90% of watch sales still actually happen in retail. And this does not discount online because I'm a firm believer in that. Um, right. But I would love to see us taking on that approach and, you know, having a hybrid effect of um, online versus retail and, and seeing that work together. I think it, I think it will have amazing results where people can actually see one thing we do a lot of. Sorry, it's getting a little bit off topic, but Andrew also manages a lot of our um, uh, I guess on on site activations, yeah, you know, yeah. different um like we were at the do tour and we've been at a lot of different like street fairs just to kind of see what people's reactions are reactions are in somewhat of a retail environment. And that was kind of what cued us that like, we need to get these into shops. Like right. people see the product and they automatically like, they're like, this is like, they may have seen it online, right. Through a Facebook ad. And then they, and then they, they come to the, the street fair or whatever it might be. And they're like, this is, this is amazing. Like I would, right. I would have totally bought this if I had seen it in person from the beginning. And so, um, anyway, little bit of a tangent but yeah i would love to see us in retail next year and obviously just continuing to grow yeah and kind of on the brand side something that ryan and i have been definitely working on a ton over the last year is you know bringing some of we want to do a lot more very unique stories you know the whiskey barrel is kind of a it's been one of our best sellers and we want to continue that going forward to be able to tell stories um, it, maybe more limited watches, more uniqueness, you know, collaborations. We actually have a few special collaborations coming out this year. Um, and yeah, just really tying in our marketing to the consumers we want to reach um, and just being super unique with our product. You know, it's, it's our, our stuff is special um, with the wood. You know, you can tell a ton of stories and there's a ton of history there. Uh, and we're going to go out and get that and be very unique this year. Very cool. Thanks so much, Ryan and Andrew. So originalgrain.com, again, is a website. Anywhere else you recommend the listeners check out if they want to follow along with what you guys are up to? Yeah, check out our Instagram, at originalgrain. Um, we're just posting a ton of you know, unique fashion um, and just some of our best styles and shots that we have. So yeah, you can find us there. Cool. Thanks so much again for your time, guys. Cheers, Cheers, man. Thanks. Thanks for listening to Shopify Masters, the e-commerce marketing podcast for ambitious entrepreneurs. To start your store today, visit shopify.com slash masters to claim your extended 30-day free trial.